All right, this is Hebrews 2020, where we're dropping lens after lens to get 2020 vision with the eyes of our heart to be able to perceive our Lord Jesus Christ as our own destiny and our own hope. Today's message, following up as it is of increment 164, this is 165, this time two immutable things. Same keyword amatathaton as last time, only with a little bit different twist here. So Father, again, we commit our souls to you, a faithful creator. We entrust our spirit to you as our divine teacher. We present our bodies to you unto service to you. In Jesus Christ's name, and we pray that the result of this message will be not just understanding granted to your people, not even just certainty granted to our hope, but to the magnification of Jesus Christ in our mortal bodies in this life. And I thank you, Father, that we have no righteousness of our own and we intend to be found not leaning on any righteousness of our own for the righteousness that we have is through the faithfulness of your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we present these requests and expressions of thanksgiving to you. Amen. Two immutable things. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17, the adjective... Amatathaton, A-M-E-T-A-T-H-E-T-O-N. Well, it's Omicron N. This is a little tricky. We learned a little bit about inflections a couple times ago. And then the second time, it has an Omega-O. That's because it's a little bit different context. But in Hebrews 6.17, the adjective amatathaton is descriptive of the purpose of God. In Hebrews 6.17, the adjective is used as a substantive, and I don't want to get too technical, but it means that it serves the purpose of a noun, and it should be called unstoppability or immutability of God's purpose. And the purpose there, again, we've seen is tes bules, T-E-S, then B-O-U-L-E-S, and then A-U-T-O, which means God, A-U-T-O-U, which means God's, that's a possessive pronoun, the purpose of God, immutable, unchangeable, inalterable, unchallengeable, whatever you want to say, it's certain. And when this purpose gets into your soul, it makes you immovable. It makes you like the psalmist who said, I shall not be moved. And we become steadfast and immovable in hope. That's the real key to happiness and joy and peace in this life. So it's the unstoppability of God's purpose. The resolution when God is resolved to do something, the determination when God is determined to do a thing of God's great and gracious intention. His intention is both great and gracious. His purpose, tes bules autu, has the attribute of unchangeability, and that's what amatathaton 
is. His purpose is unalterable, immutable in the absolute sense. So I want to consider this word, the key word of both of these last messages, 164 and 165, in a slightly wider context. So here, here it is, Hebrews 6.16, my translation. Now men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves. And for them, the oath for confirmation is the end of all contradiction. Oaths were made, therefore, to end arguments, to end debates, and to bring a conclusion to them. An a fortiori argument is being presented here, and it's this. If human oaths are made by swearing by something greater than humanity, and if human oaths for confirmation are the end of all contradiction, then how much more the oaths of God, who has no one greater than himself, and who therefore swears by himself... How much more is a divine oath for confirmation, therefore, the end of all contradiction? You want to contradict God's universal plan of salvation? Not going to work. You want to contradict the immutability of his purpose? Can't do it. Not successfully. You can try. Hebrews 6.17. So when God determined to show his unchangeable Purpose. There it is again. To amatathaton tes bules autu. Even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. What was God's desire? I want to make this more clear, more abundantly clear to the heirs of the promise. So how will I do that? I'll interpose with an oath. I'll swear, but I can't find anybody greater than myself to swear by, so I'll swear by myself. He interposed with an oath. So please note that God was determined to show, the Greek verb there is epidexai, to exhibit or to demonstrate, to put on display even more clearly the immutability of his purpose to the heirs of the promise. Now it's, it's enough for God to promise Promises something, we say amen to it. Jesus Christ is the amen to all the promises. But think of how he actually condescended to add an oath to the promise. It's quite extraordinary. So even more clearly, he wanted to show the immutability of his purpose to the heirs of the promise. What's the promise here he's speaking about? The promise to Abraham of unimaginable blessing and innumerable posterity. See those stars in the sky? See the grains of sand by the beach of the sea? Count them if you can. That's the number of your posterity. That's the number of your seed, the descendants that will be blessed in your seed. And that seed is Christ. Galatians 3.16, who happens to be our great archpriest. So... Please note, once again, that God was determined to show or to exhibit or demonstrate even more clearly the immutability of his purpose to the heirs of the promise. That's the promise to Abraham. So this is what God determines to do in our time. Say, what's God doing right now? Well, one of the things he's doing in our time is to make clear to us the immutability of his eternal and universal saving purpose. That's what he wants. 
This is what God determines to do in our time so that we can be, what? Steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He resolves to show us the unchangeability of his purpose. His purpose, tes bules autu, is related to the mystery of his will, which is to sum up all things and all times in Christ Jesus, his beloved son. A comparison is called for then, as we've seen before and suggested before, a comparison is called for of Hebrews 6, 17 to 18, which we just read or are reading with Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. And it's important for the students of this homily to realize we came to Hebrews through a study of the mystery of God's will. All the way back in 2019, we considered the mystery of God's will. And so I want to give a translation, brief as it is, in first, the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, starting with the last two words in 6, where God calls his son the beloved. The beloved. And this is very important. As we've learned before, the theologians of the past, especially medieval theologians like Aquinas and others, spoke of love as this way. In love, the lover is in the beloved. So God the Father loves his son. This is my beloved son in whom I delight. So the father is the lover, is in the beloved. Jesus said it this way, my father is in me and I am in my father. What he meant was my father loves me and is in me the beloved and I the beloved love my father and I am in my father. Then he said, and you are in me and I am in you. It's all about love, even though love isn't mentioned in John 14, 20. It's mentioned in 14, 21. It's all about love, God's love. Something immutable about God is his love. You can't change it. You can't bring it, diminish it by any demerits that you rack up. You can't increase it by any merits or any good works that you do. It's God's immutable love. So bear that in mind when I read this. Ephesians 1, 6, C, we'll call it, because it ends with the word beloved, all the way up through 1, 11. I believe that's, yes, we have that. Ephesians 1, 6, the beloved, verse 7, in whom we possess redemption through his blood. When I use the word redemption, I refer you back a couple of increments to when we did A words, alpha words in the New Testament, one of them is apolutrosis, which means redemption. And we showed how redemption isn't just an individual thing, but a universal thing. That God intends to redeem the universe and all of human beings and all of time, etc. So, in whom we possess redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the wealth of his grace. That he caused to abound to us along with all wisdom and insight. God not only gave us this abundant grace and made clear this abundantly immutable purpose, he also gave us insight, wisdom. Preaching and teaching is supposed to be the conveying of insights to the audience, of things that light you up inside, and that light is from the countenance and the face of Jesus Christ. 
He caused to abound to us along with all wisdom and insight. Here's verse 9 of Ephesians 1. By making known to us the mystery of his will according to his benevolent intention which he intended in him, that is in Christ, for the administration of his household, which is all the universe, in the fullness of times, to gather and sum up all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth, in whom you were predestined to be made his inheritance according to the purpose set forth by the one, that's God, who effects everything according to the unstoppable resolution, there it is, bules, which is found in Ephesians 1.11 and Hebrews 6.17 and, remember last increment, Isaiah 46.10, of his will, thelema. So we have his will, which is a general term of his intention, thelema, it looks like this, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, thelema, and we have bules, which is the unstoppable determination of his will, his intention. It's unstoppable. It's immutable, it's unalterable, it's unchangeable. He's going to do it. Nothing can stand in his way. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can prohibit it. Nothing can even forestall it or even make it happen later than it should. Postpone it, we would say. God has not only resolved to gather and sum up all things in the heavens and on earth, and that includes all human beings, all angelic beings, all creatures, and all of created reality. He has also determined to show the heirs of the promise, which is human beings on earth right now, that this purpose and this resolution is absolutely immutable and that they, that is we, can be absolutely assured of its coming to pass. In one sense, it already has come to pass, and we know that because Jesus Christ has entered into the tent not made with hands and not of this creation above the corporeal and temporal planes of existence. So that's something that's a little too, well, detailed to deal with right now. But in this determination of God, we see his passionate philanthropy, his fervent, caring love for mankind. He was... And he is more abundantly resolved to make the intention known to us. And he showed it by interposing with an oath. He wants us to know that he didn't just promise Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in his seed, but he backed it with an oath. Here's a thesis for you for our commentary. Hebrews is the way God shows us the immutability of his universal and eternal saving intention. Why was Hebrews written? To show us the immutability of God's universal and eternal saving intention. You say, how do we see it? We see it when we see Jesus. That's how. Theologians of the past and of the present teach that God is immutable. It's a big word in the theological box of attributes. And unfortunately, it is a box. Theologians of the past and the present teach that God is immutable. And this is true. 
regarding God's love, thank God. I, the Lord, change not. In his purpose, he doesn't change. In his love, he doesn't change. Nor does God change his mind when he resolves to bless. In Balaam's second oracle, you find that in Numbers 23, the once mad prophet, he went mad for a while because of disobedience to God. That's what happens to people, neurosis, psychoneurosis, psychosis, all deriving from, in many cases, disobedience to God. And so God commissioned him to bless the people of God and to speak a blessing or repeat God's blessing to Israel. And a billionaire named Barak at the time, or Balak, make that, bribed him and said, I want you to speak a message where you curse God's people. So Balaam took the bride, bribe. But in his second oracle, the once mad prophet, according to 2 Peter 2.16, declared the following to the billionaire Balak, who had previously bribed the prophet to curse Israel. And Balaam said, God isn't a man who lies or a mere mortal who changes his mind. When he says something, he does it. When he makes a promise, he fulfills it. Now, I received a commandment to bless from God. I will bless, therefore, and not turn away from that commission. Now, I don't know whether he said, keep your money, like Peter did with the guy that wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Let your money perish with you. I don't know if he did, but he pretty much did by that. Numbers 23, 20, 19, and 20. Balaam found that he could not curse, but only bless Israel. So he was healed from his psychosis when he turned back to the command of God. He found that he couldn't curse, but only bless Israel, because why? God had already said to Abraham, blessing, I will bless you and your seed. And he interposed with an oath. If you and I go against something God backed with an oath, a promise he backed with an oath, we've become mad at that moment. We're nuts. The madness of the prophet. And the madness of the prophet, prophet, of course, was appropriately rebuked by a jackass who was at that point much smarter than the prophet. And we read about that in Numbers 23 also and in Second Peter 2. Balaam found out you can't curse God. You can be a preacher and preach all day long that people can lose their salvation, but you're nuts. You're mad. You're insane. You can tell people all day long that despite his promise to bless everybody at all times, there's still going to be billions of people going to hell. But you'd be nuts to say that. You're nuts. And that's polite. So get with the program. God didn't command and commission you to curse, but to bless and to help people's joy. And to preach good news, good news of his son, not the good news of the good works that you're doing. That's not good news. You might find that many of your good works, so-called, are really filthy rags. Balaam found that he couldn't curse but only bless Israel because God had already said to Abraham, blessing, I will bless you. God's blessing along with his gifts and calling are irreversible. Romans 11:29 Similarly God's purpose is irrevocable 
And his determination to sum up all of created reality in his beloved son is immutable. It is amatathaton. We must undergo a differentiation of consciousness here, though, with regard to immutability of God. There's a difference between immutable and impassable. There are people that say God is impassable, I-M-P-A-S-S-A-B-L-E. That means he's without passion, he's without pathos, he's without the feelings of compassion. And so he's a, he's a God without pathos. That's not true at all. The immutable God is immutable in his love, but he's not impassable like people from Aquinas onward have tried to teach us. That God does not change in his determination to bless in this way doesn't mean that God is impassable, meaning that he's absent passion or the ability to feel or to suffer. God co-suffers, co-suffers with us in our suffering. We say, why am I suffering? God would answer, I'm suffering with you. I'm co-suffering with you. Jesus, God and man, our great archpriest, says, the scripture says, is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He wept at the grave of Lazarus, not because he didn't believe Lazarus was going to be risen from the dead at any moment. He wept at the grave of Lazarus because he was touched with the feelings of the infirmities and the griefs of the people there at that so-called graveside. And when they saw him weeping, they said, oh, how he must have loved him. And they were sure right about that. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Because he co-suffers with us and knows our suffering and our infirmity, God the Father has loved us and given us age-abiding encouragement and good hope by grace. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.16, a wonderful verse that corresponds splendidly with our own here. Hebrews is all about the age-abiding encouragement and good hope by grace. Hebrews is all about what 2 Thessalonians 2.16 calls age-abiding or eternal consolation and hope. This is why Pam and I, for example, have been praying for those who have recently experienced loss and who are aggrieved or sorrowful for a number of reasons. We pray according to 2 Thessalonians 2.16 and 17. Our Lord, we pray that, quote, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, would encourage your hearts and strengthen you. Praying that God himself will do this, that Jesus Christ himself will do this. Meditate on that, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17. But let's run the iron over the passage, the fabric of the passage one more time, and let's move a little bit further in 6.18, so that, and here's our title for today's message, or today's increment, so that by two immutable things, two, duo is a word in the Greek, D-U-O, talk about a dynamic duo, duo 
pragmaton, amatathaton. Two things, two immutable things. By two unchangeable, inalterable, immutable things. In both of which God is not able to lie. What did Balaam say? God can't lie. He's not, he's not going to curse people he's blessed. You're not talking about a God who's like man who can lie or like a man who can change his mind all of a sudden. I said I'd bless you and I'd bless all humanity. Oh, I changed my mind. He doesn't do that. Two immutable things in both of which God is unable to lie. We've been talking about this. His absolute veracity. His inability to lie or distort the truth or be inauthentic or to exaggerate the truth or stretch it or do whatever we do in both of which God is not able to lie. We who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement. You know what we are? We're refugees. So I'll say it again. I know you want to argue with me, some of you out there who are fans of Tom Petty. You don't have to live like a refugee, he said. I beg to differ. We do have to live like a refugee because we've taken refuge in Jesus Christ. And so we live like refugees from the corruption that's in this world through inordinate desire, through wanting more and more. So... Let's back up and do it again so that by two immutable things, duo pragmaton amatathaton, in both of which God is not able to lie, we, have, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement. That's the same as age-abiding encouragement, paraklesen aeonion in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. So, in fact, that's a Bible study in itself. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, eternal encouragement, and strong encouragement here in 6.18, paraklesen iskuron. So, again, I keep doing that. I'm always tempted to go off on some tangent. So let's back up and run the iron over the fabric again, starting at verse 18, so that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize grasp, lay hold of the hope set before us. And that's what I did, the whole anatomy of hope based on that little phrase, the hope set before us. It's like the parts of a body on a table. It's an anatomy of all the parts of hope. And that's what the hope set before us. It's in the scriptures. So the two immutable or unchangeable things in Hebrews 6.18 are not what I used to think, the divine promise and the divine oath. Those aren't the two immutable things, not the promise and the oath. The two immutable things are the oath-fortified promise of all humanity being blessed in Abraham's seed, and secondly, the oath-fortified oracle, which is coming up. You, a priest forever, like Melchizedek. That's also oath-fortified. If you read Psalm 110.4, LXX 109.4, you find that God backed that with an oath. He pronounced to Abraham a promise that all of humanity would be blessed in his seed, Christ. He fortified it with an oath. 
But he also fortified the oracle or the pronouncement or the announcement to Jesus Christ. You, there's an exclamation point there. He points to his son at his right hand who's seated there until all his enemies are placed under his feet. He says to the same son, you are a priest forever like Melchizedek. And we're going to explore that in future increments. What does that mean? What does it mean after the order of Melchizedek? And what does it mean to be a priest forever? Those two phrases are kind of hard to explain, but we have the explanation, and it's coming up. It's already in my notes, but I've got to really kind of hammer it out. So the two things are the oath-fortified promise to Abraham, which is the unimaginable, innumerable progeny, the salvation of all human race, and the oath-fortified oracle of the one single inclusive representative, the archpriest, who encompasses that total humanity and expresses the destiny of human society, as we've seen before. So, once again, the oath, the two unchangeable things here are not just the oath and the promise, but the oath-fortified promise of all humanity being blessed in Abraham's seed, and secondly, the oath-fortified oracle, you are a priest forever like Melchizedek. These two things are rendered immutable by the absolute veracity of God. God, who cannot lie, has promised eternal life, not just for you and for me and for those who believe in this life, but for all of creation and all of humanity over all of time. This eternal life is not just for us, but for all of creation, which is to be eternized. And that's a word, eternize, E-T-E-R-N-I-Z-E. It's a word, even if it isn't in your dictionary, it should be. Eternized with the life of God. The oath-fortified promise of an innumerable seed or uncountable descendants in the one seed, Christ, and the oath-fortified oracle of Jesus as the great archpriest like Melchizedek, that's going to be the subject coming up in, well, starts in 620, goes all the way through 1018 or so. The oath-fortified promise of an innumerable seed and the oath-fortified oracle of Jesus as the great archpriest like Melchizedek are the two immutable things. Duo pragmaton, the dynamic duo. The promise is innumerable descendants, which means all of humanity. The oath is one singular, inclusive representative, that being the great archpriest in whom all those descendants are to be summed up, gathered together, blessed, and recapitulated in an unimaginable new creation. Both immutable things the oath-fortified promise to Abraham, the oath-fortified oracle to Jesus are grounded in the absolute veracity of God, his inability to lie. And I'm going to make a repetition here so that you don't forget this and don't drift away from this truth in a minute. Eternal life was promised by God who cannot lie, Titus 1-2, Titus 3-7. He is... I like this word that's found in Hebrews 6.18. He is ah, that's an, a privative that deprives the, the next part of the word of its power. Ah, P-S-E-U-D-E-S. He is 
apsudes, apsudes. We get our word pseudo from this. He is incapable of being pseudo. He's incapable of lying. He has absolute veracity. And that's the basis for these oath-fortified promise and the oath-fortified oracle, God's immutable and absolute veracity or truth. So both immutable things in Hebrews 6.18 are as certain and immutable as the promise of eternal life which God who cannot lie, again, in Titus 1.2, promised. Both immutable things in Hebrews 6.18 are unchangeable and unchallengeable and can't be contradicted, that means. And they are so precisely because of God's inability to lie. doesn't matter if Balak gives Balaam a billion dollars he still can't change the fact that God can't lie. That's the absolute veracity of God. So worthy of repetition, again, is concerning God's absolute veracity is a statement that I stumbled upon, a statement that was made a century ago by John Skinner in his commentary on Isaiah. You say, you have just already quoted that. Yes, but I'm going to do it again so you don't forget it. Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, writing on Isaiah 45, John Skinner in the early 20th century said, the long passage on the mission of Cyrus closes here with the announcement of a salvation as universal as it is eternal. Isaiah 45, 17, a purpose of universal salvation is in harmony with the character of God who made the world for man to dwell in and whose revelation of himself to Israel bears the signature of absolute veracity. The way I put it, God signs his own name by an oath to these promises, but he signs his own name in his own blood, the blood of his son. Secondly, worthy of repetition is this conclusion. Along with the reality that the salvation that God has wrought and mediated through Jesus is both eternal and universal. Is this worthy of repetition statement? The hope of eternal life is just not just my eternal life as the gift of God or our eternal life, that of the church. It is eternal life for all of creation which is destined to be comprised of Jesus, the Son of God. He is the true God and eternal life. Now love comes into the picture shortly. The absolute veracity of God is why hope is an anchor for the soul. This hope is in Jesus, who is beyond the second veil in the heavenly region, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus is the forerunner for us, as we're going to learn in Hebrews 6.20. And that's the personal expression and manifestation of divine promeity. God is God for us. The Aaronic archpriest, or the priest that began with Aaron through Levi and up to the time of Jesus, the Aaronic archpriest represented and included all of Israel. They were to be the representation of all of Israel. The Melchizedekan archpriest, which is of which there's only one, Jesus, he represents and comprises not all of Israel, but all of humankind and all of the nations, including Israel, and ultimately all of creation over which the Most High God is sovereign. As Melchizedek predates Aaron, 
He represents all people before the existence of Israel. Jesus, the great archpriest, is the inclusive representative of all of Israel and of all the nations that predate and post-date the foundation of Israel. That's Romans 11, 25, and 26. So let's run the iron over the fabric again an inch a bit further in our exposition as we move to a close. Hebrews 6, 16, all the way through Hebrews 6, 20, reads this way. Now men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves, and from them the oath for confirmation is the end, or for them the oath of confirmation is the end of all contradiction. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he interposed with an oath, so that by two immutable things, both of which, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the second curtain. That's the heavenly curtain. It's necessary to repeat some things, and I haven't hit 620 yet, but it's necessary to repeat some things here, lest we let them slip away and we drift off course. So thirdly, what's worthy of repetition that we've looked at before is that God's unchangeable purpose here in Hebrews 6.18 corresponds with the purpose or the determination of God's will in Ephesians 1.11. Moreover, fourthly, both of these two immutable things are related to the grace-filled intention. That's how I translate that in Ephesians 1.5. The grace-filled intention of his will in Ephesians 1.5. It's also called a great intention which God brings about in love. Here's where we get to a climactic part here. In agape. In love. In love. Ephesians 1.5. In agape. Which is also in the beloved. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Now. Fifthly, then worthy of repetition is something I didn't do in the last increment, but in increments previous to this, Marcus Barth, B-A-R-T-H, son of Karl Barth, did a two-part commentary on Ephesians. And he wrote this, again, I kind of stumbled over this one recently, having read it before. In his treatment of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the longest sentence extant in English literature, is also very much on point with our present passage. This is what Marcus Barth wrote about this little phrase, en agape, in love. God's purpose, his immutable purpose, being in love. Quote, the eternal concreteness and validity of the full blessing of man is vouchsafed by God's eternal love of the Son. The Son is the eternal reality, and he is therefore the reliable demonstration in history of a love which is not accidental but essential to God. The eternal presence of the Son at the Father's side, and that's what Hebrews is all about, 
the son at the father's right side, is the substance and ground of the affirmation that love is of God's essence. Love can by no means be separated from God or be identified with a passing whim, a retractable decision, a historical coincidence. God is love. This is the essence of Christ's preexistence. To that I would add, sixthly, worthy of repetition, 1 John 4, 8c through 10. God is love. By this, God's love was revealed among us that the only eternally begotten Son was sent by God into the world so that, he would li- so that we would live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the expiation of our sins. And it's always to do good to do things by sevens or by threes or by tens or by twelves. So seventhly, the purpose, Tain Bulein, of God in Isaiah 46.10, Ephesians 1.11, and Hebrews 6.18 is his unstoppable and unchangeable resolution, his divine and eternal, universal salvific determination that can't be derailed or thwarted by any means or by any creaturely agency whatsoever. That's why Paul said, I'm persuaded that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So in closing of Hebrews, this increment of Hebrews 165, amatathaton, for unchangeable or immutable, highlights one of the most important things about God's great and gracious intention to gather together everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ, his beloved. God has hope too. He subjected all of creation to futility in hope. That's his hope. God has hope too. God's hope, however, is his determined and unstoppable resolution and determined to liberate all of creation. His determination to liberate all of creation from its slavery to entropy, which science calls entropy, which the Bible calls corruption, and all of humanity from its slavery to sin and our susceptibility to death. I'll say that again. God's hope, and we can call it hope because Romans does, is his determined and unstoppable resolution and determination to liberate all of creation from its slavery to entropy, and all of humanity from its slavery to sin and susceptibility to death. Human hope can be weak, wishful thinking, or it can be an expectation of deliverance and other good things. But as human hope increases in power in the believer, it moves to an immovable assurance and overflows in a bold confession. And I'll repeat this again. This absolute assurance and bold confidence and confession is not arrogant. In fact, once you've been convinced of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive, reconciling, rectifying, and transforming impact of the cross of Christ, it would be rather arrogant to express any uncertainty about it. Amen.
دارن 